it's interesting to think back on Johnny's time at Texas A&M and that magical year where he wins the Heisman. Cliff Kingsbury is his offensive coordinator, right? And kind of a perfect pairing of coordinator and quarterback. And we've talked at length about how that play caller quarterback relationship is one of the most important relationships in all of all of sports, really, is what I, I personally believe. Bird right, 18 premium diesel. Joe Montana, Buster Douglas, John Elway, John Elway. Daisy right, Soy, Blitz right, Travolta right, Pumpkin left, Alert Charlotte left. Hold on. Punch right, Zach. We'll go 15 tip scissors. Cannon to three and a jet F stick. Victory is a great play call. All right, coaches, welcome back. We appreciate you tuning in. We are fired up to be back with you guys on the Play Callers Club. We just had a chance to watch the new Johnny Football documentary, Untold, on ES, uh, not on ESPN, it's on Netflix, and uh, have some thoughts for sure. We also want to talk a little bit about the Philadelphia Eagles and what they're doing offensively today, so uh, we'll, we'll transition to that later on in the episode. But we did have to make sure we gave our very own Fighting Texas Aggie the first crack at this Johnny football story and what some of his reactions were as a, uh, as an A&M quarterback. Yeah, I think, I mean, before we dive into, and I'm, there's plenty to talk about just kind of initial thoughts, just kind of thinking back on Johnny was just how transcendent of a player he was and kind of, you know, what he did for the university stepping into the sec um, obviously that was a big deal, you know, kind of branching away from what all the A&M fans knew in the big 12, getting away from Texas with the whole Longhorn network and everything. There was a lot of, you know, bad blood going on there. And so, you know, just, and, and then, you know, stepping in with this unknown red shirt freshman that sets the world on fire. I mean, it's just, and you kind of see how, you know, when you, get to see a little bit of the background of it, how something crazy like that can happen, you know, with just so much going on happening so fast. I mean, it really did. It's just, you know, all of a sudden, you know, he bursts on the scene first couple games and then all of a sudden you beat Alabama and he basically said, you know, my life changed that night, basically knew that he won the Heisman trophy. And it's not just like, you know, some random guy winning the Heisman trophy. It's your first ever, true or not true freshman first ever freshman to win the Heisman trophy. And it's in a game that's been around for so long, there's not a lot of firsts. And so for a first to happen, you know, in 2012 is pretty wild. Um, so that's just kind of my first initial thoughts on it is, you know, how transcendent of a player he was, how different of a player he was definitely not your traditional, you know, they, A&M went from having Ryan Tannehill the year, the years before that and how, you know, how different you go from a guy that, you know, is playing in the Mike Sherman system could not be more traditional to, you know, switching over to Kevin Sumlin and Cliff Kingsbury and Johnny Manziel stepping into the SEC, you know, completely catching everybody off guard. I think just what a wild year that was. No kidding. I mean, I think it, it, it also, one of the things that stood out in that documentary was the fact that Kevin Sumlin and Cliff Kingsbury really let Johnny be Johnny as a football Mm -hmm. player. And I think there's very few coaches that would let a redshirt freshman kind of unproven guy do some of the things that he did and, and play with the amount of freedom that he played with. And I guess, you know, I had a coach in college who used to say the same thing that makes you laugh will make you cry. And, uh, you know, I think it's kind of a catch-22, right? It's like, in in a way, letting Johnny be Johnny on the field is what led to so much success. And then maybe in a way, letting Johnny be Johnny led to some some not-so-good things within the program also because, you know, it's hard to hard to rein somebody like that in as well. And so it, it was a very fascinating story. But, I, I mean, how can you forget him bursting on the scene and really bringing the that kind of spread offense energy into the SEC. And I think a lot of people were like, there's no way this works. You know, you're not going to get into a track meet with Alabama. It's just, there's just no way. And the way that he was able to pull it out, it was like, obviously Houston wasn't in the big 12 at the time, but just the brand of football was very big 12 ish. um, And they were able to 
play almost like Big 12 spread football in the SEC. And it really started to lead to this revolution of offenses in the SEC that, no, it's not going to be 21 personnel and pound the football anymore. It's going to be wide open spread. And, yeah, it's, it's a totally new era of offense in the in the conference for sure with A&M joining and with some of the other offenses that took off around the same time. And I think, you know, kind of back to you talking about when Cliff mentioned letting Johnny be Johnny, I think what's just so wild to think about that year is, you know, they played, I think their first game of the year got postponed. They're supposed to play Louisiana Tech week one. I think it got postponed and they ended up not playing it until a little bit later. So they end up, their first game that year ends up being against Florida. And I think if things go a little bit, you know, Cliff mentioned, I didn't really let him be himself in that first game. Well, if that game goes a little bit differently, they win that game. They end up going 11 and one that year with only loss being to LSU. Well, now they win the SEC West and are, you know, possibly getting to play for the national championship that year. So how much different that year could have even been, you know, just with one game? I mean, obviously you can say that about a lot of teams, but if things just go a little bit differently, you're talking about possibly, I mean, because Alabama goes on to, you know, kill Notre Dame in the national championship that year. And A&M was really the one to give them their best test that year. I was at the the Florida, a- Florida versus A&M game when I remember watching – you know, Johnny being, I guess, like this unproven starter, being registered freshman playing. And what I noticed from watching that game uh, was that he was able to turn the corner on that Florida defense. And now this isn't like, you know, Florida of like, you know, 08, 09, right, of, the, of their glory years. But he said we're still Florida. And he had enough speed to turn the corner, enough speed to just like have a really good uh, – a really had, a, had enough speed to get rushing yards versus that uh, vaulted Florida defense at the time. And for them to only lose by like three points really kind of put like a kind of put notice on other teams that hey like A and M's here they could they could do some things here in uh, in SEC and it's just just a magical ride. I think that my biggest takeaway from watching that documentary was just all of the behind the scenes things going on, um, like the story about the family oil money, how that was fake, and just deciding of the autographs, um, just finding out like all those stories like behind the scenes and how he really was just struggling internally. And uh, Jake, like kind of how you mentioned earlier, um, talking about how he recognized that his life, his life would change, you know, after, after the Alabama game and how he kind of struggled. And it seems like he's doing better now, but man, it would be nice if you watched some uh, more film with the Browns, right? (laughs) 0.0 iPad hours. I don't know. I don't know the stats, but I would love to see his stats for the Browns, his first season with the Browns, based off of his lack of film. Um, because, uh, man, that's insane for an NFL quarterback not to watch any film all season. Yeah, I've, seen, the, I've seen a lot of I've seen a lot of social media, media reaction for some no quarterbacks doubt. who like that just like makes my skin crawl. It like, gives me some anxiety thinking about going to NFL camp and not having watched any hours. Which, obviously, I think there's a little bit of a, a misconception there. I'm it's sure. like. Yeah. Obviously, when he's in the facility, he had to have, you know, watched film with the coaches, learned the plays with the coaches there. I mean, you couldn't physically. We we talked about when we did the quarterback series, some of the play calls these guys are having to make, and he had Kyle Shanahan as his offensive coordinator, so he probably had some real deal play calls he had to make. But it, you know, to go home and not spend a single second on on the iPad is pretty wild. Yeah, and I think there's a misconception too. Like I definitely saw that floating around on Twitter and everything. And you know, every co- every coach listening knows that we can track every single player and how much film they watch on you know our film software huddle. Like that's a high school thing. Like you can you know how much film everybody's watching, um, or lack thereof. So Johnny was under no he he it was not a secret. You know they weren't spying on him. It wasn't Big Brother or anything. Like he absolutely knew that they knew how much film he was watching. And I think it was more of an, uh, I don't care maybe than a, (laughs) than a, you know, Oh, got like a gotcha moment or anything like that. I just can't imagine trying to play in Kyle Shanahan's offense and not watching, not watching film. (laughs) I mean, we we talked about it already, but one of the most complex detailed offensive systems in the NFL and uh, to not be, super prepared obviously you're not going to have a lot of success when you can't just out athlete people not that he just out athleted people at at 
A&M, but I think a lot of times like he, he was kind of the best player on the field. At least that's what it kind of seemed like for, for everybody watching. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, there's a part of me too. That's like for as great as he was at A&M, can we just pause and talk about the A&M roster when he was there? Like the offensive line had like multiple first round offensive tackles, mm-hmm. I believe. Like wasn't Luke Jokel and Luke Jake Jokel, Matthews? Jake Matthews. Both yeah. first rounders. And I think even the interior guys, like there's definitely um, you know, NFL offensive linemen on that group. Yep. There's I mean, let's just talk about the receiver group. He's got Mike Evans, who's, you know, I think, he's never had under a thousand yards of season. <laughs> I think I think he's probably a pro bowler. Um and then you have okay. Everyone, I guess nobody talks enough about Ryan Swope and how good he was at A&M before. I think he had some concussion issues that kind of kept him out of professional football, but he was lights out at A&M. So he, he had so much talent on that roster. And again, I'm not taking away from what he did as a player, but, you know, Mike Sherman, the cupboard was not bare when Mike Sherman left. There were some yeah. really good players on that roster when, uh, yeah, when I think Dummy that's like the, Cliff got the there. classic, the classic debate now is it was always like, you know, Johnny kind of made Mike what he was. And then hindsight, you see where Mike is now and where Johnny is now. And you're like, well, maybe there's a little <laughs> bit of, there's... and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't say it's that Mike completely made Johnny either. I mean, there's, I mean, there's stuff that Johnny did that nobody could do, but I think, you see it's definitely a little bit more even now. They definitely helped each other out for sure a little bit in that situation. But yeah, I mean to have a dude that is that big can run like that. And I mean, what, what's the, the Mike Evans story? That dude didn't start playing football so until junior, junior right? in yeah, high junior. school. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, from, is he from Galveston or yeah. high school? Yeah. Ball, Galveston. Galveston ball, mm-hmm. basketball guy. I'm telling you, dude. When I when I was when I was in the high school coaching scene, I would always get those six four, six five basketball players. I'm like six four and six five in basketball, and six four and six five in football are different very things. different. Let me tell you, you're talking about a mid major basketball player or an a power five SEC mm-hmm. receiver. Yeah. Um, trust me, I've given that pitch a lot. I've given that pitch. It doesn't always work. Everybody, you know. You know they want it. They want to take jump shots, but I'm telling you, would you rather take a jump shot and uh, you know be done at 22 or catch a jump ball and get to play till you're 30? You know, I've honed that pitch. I've really, really tried. Uh, but yeah, it's you know I, again, keep going. I, keep going. <laughs> I just think it's. I think it's one of those stories where it's it is kind of magical. And I think to be fair to Johnny, it's like, did he even really want? all that fame, all that notoriety, all that pressure. Did he really even love football like that? Yeah. You know? And and I think it's easy to to sling rocks at him and criticize him for quote unquote wasted talent. But some people, you know, I think he may have been really happy if he hadn't had all that fame and all that pressure and all those expectations where some people love football, like period. Like they they bleed it. They love it. Some people are really good at football and they don't love it. And so it's really difficult when you go to that next level, and they're asking more of you, like a full on commitment. And uh, I don't know if he was prepared to give that. Yeah, I think it. I mean, when I really started thinking about it, you know, sometimes you you talk to when you're, you know, when you get to higher level and. Sometimes coaches are like, you know, it's a kid's game or whatever. But really, when you get to that college and NFL level, it, you know, it is, it does become more of a business. And I really think Johnny had the love of football at like a, from like a, you know, he loved it like it was a kid's game. He loved, that was the game he loved, you know, playing growing up. But when it came to the business and the fame and all that side of it, I just think it was, it was just a lot. And when it's, you know, some guys get a chance to, you know, some, he wasn't a highly recruited kid out of high school. And so he, you know, nowadays kids are kind of get to almost have this process of fame where, you know, you're kind of famous almost as a high school kid now, and then right. you become a little more famous in college. And then you're kind of, I mean, I mean, think about like Bryce Young. I mean, now he's just, you know, he's 
won the Heisman as a redshirt freshman and, you know, kind of went through the same thing, but he's, he's been in that spotlight a little bit more. He was a highly recruited kid out of college or out of high school. And, you know, there's more exposure to him now, as opposed to where Johnny was kind of in that moment to where social media was just starting to get really big. You know, everything is just, you know, I mean, it was kind of weird, like watching some of that film back and seeing how bad, like some of the news, like cast look, you're like, wow, oh, right. 2012 wasn't that, or 2011, 2012 wasn't that long ago, but this looks like horrible quality. (laughs) (laughs) So you forget that, like, you know, he didn't have to go through those, or he didn't experience some of those things until all of a sudden it's, you're on the late night shows, you're hanging out with all these, you know, mega stars. And it's like, most people would probably handle that pretty poorly. And that, is that an excuse? No, but most people that are just thrown in that situation that have never dealt with anything even remotely close like that before, they're just used to hanging out with their boys in high school and, you know, having a good time. That's, that's a crazy experience to be thrown into. Yeah. To be 20, 21 years old and to be, to have the whole world on your shoulders pretty much overnight. I mean, I can't imagine, I can imagine being, being his age and winning the Heisman and having, having just like a, a target on your back, essentially. Um, and it, to your point about loving football, I think there's a point in the documentary where he was with the Browns like midway through the season, his first year there, saying how much he just didn't like it there. And he was trying to find a way, kind of wanted to find a way to find a way out. And it's okay. If, like football's one of those games which you got to love, right? You have to love mm-hmm. playing football because it's like, it's a, da- it's a dangerous sport in the sense that like, if you don't love it, you can get injured. <laughs> Things can not work out well for you, right? Like basketball, you get injured, you'll be fine. Like baseball, if you don't love it, you still play, you'll be fine. But football, like, you got to be in this, right? So, um, you know, hearing him towards the end of the documentary talking about how he never, he, how he just thought by being a college football player, that was like really what he dreamed about. So mm-hmm. him even going to the NFL was just like probably shocked him in some aspects. And it kind of seems as though that he essentially kind of wanted, if it was up to him, like he would, probably would have preferred to stay in college for like a few years. Like probably did his four years in school. But being that that first year he did so well, he was unable to do that. And to me, like just thinking about him and thinking about today's time with like NIO, I could see him be one of those guys in which if if he had if he was able to be in today's NFL mm-hmm. today's uh, scene when it comes to college football, you know, doing three years of college football, making this money to kind of like, all right, if I want to go to NFL, I guess I could, but I really don't want to. I could just work on some of these deals outside of football, you know. But um, yeah, I it seems like he's doing better, and I and I hope he's doing better. Such a wild time with him playing football and just to. Alabama game and the Cotton Bowl and just fun times and watching them just slay teams in SEC was was great as a fan. Yeah. I think I think you make a great part or point about the NIL deal. I really do think that if he would have been around in the NIL age, he probably would have stayed in college a little longer. And I, once again, I was not there when he was there, so I don't you know some of the things I hear are just you know rumors. But some of the rumors were that it was kind of like. Hey, I think it's time for you to move on, you know, kind of with everything going on. It's like, this could look really bad for the university. If we keep trying to keep this thing going, it could look bad for the program. I think it's just time for, you know, you move on to the NFL. We'll kind of do our thing here. And, you know, I think if those things were legalized at the time, it it wouldn't have been as big of a deal, but because, you know, there was, it wasn't really a gray area. It was pretty black and white right <laughs> back then. It was like, yep. I think it's time, time for you to just move on. And I, and you know, maybe if he does stay in college another year, maybe he does, you know, get a little bit more prepared. Maybe he does, you know, love it a little bit more, feel a little bit better going about. He kind of has that off year a little bit where he struggles and it doesn't go as well as it did the year before, but maybe he grows from that as opposed to being thrown in the fire of the NFL. Yeah. I was watching, I was listening to Jimbo talk the other day and he was talking about how nowadays they were asking him about playing freshmen and the pressure of putting a freshman out there, you know, maybe when they're not ready to play, but if you don't play them, you could potentially lose them. And he was basically saying that you can ruin a freshman faster than you can make them. And it's like, if you go throw a kid out there before he's ready, you know, you, it, it doesn't even matter. I mean, you could, you could lose them before you ever even get the chance. So it's, it's this hard balance. And I just think, 
with the pressures of, you know, I was talking about social media again earlier. I just think there's never been more of a, a, you know, a time where kids are so worried about what you're not just worried about what the hundred thousand people in the, in the stands are thinking about you. You got all these people that are at home watching you. If you make one little mistake in the game, you're getting blasted all over Twitter, all over Instagram, all over the message boards. Memes are made about you. It's like, you can't, there's no escaping it. And so, I mean, I, I even remembered when I played, like, the when you actually got out there and played the game, there wasn't nerves, but it was always the moments building up before the game that you just, you know, and that's normal anyway, but you'd always feel that extra pressure and extra, extra expectation going into the game. And then you get out there and, you, like we said, it's you love football, you're just playing football, you're having fun. Obviously, there's, you know, the ebbs and flows of the game, there's, you know, the conversations you have on the sideline, you can feel the crowd shifting one way or the other, but there's all those other things that you're so worried and consumed about in, you know, the 21st century now that just is so much different than how it used to be. And it's funny because you have all these coaches that are like, don't worry about that stuff. And it's like, yeah, you're the guys that grew up when like people couldn't even watch your games. Like the, the people, the people that were at the games were the only people that knew about it. And everybody else was watching the recorded version of your game. Yeah, now now everyone's watching every move and, and mm-hmm. seeing the full replay and you know, you're you're just getting picked picked apart. I mean it's yeah. it is really tough. And you know, one of the speaking of just it being difficult and uh the expectations being maybe unrealistic for both players and coaches, I do think it's interesting to think back on Johnny's time at Texas A and M. And that magical year where he wins the Heisman, Cliff Kingsbury is his offensive coordinator, right? And kind of a perfect pairing of coordinator and quarterback. And we've talked at length about how that play caller quarterback relationship is one of the most important relationships in all of all of sports, really, is what I, I personally believe. And so you go from a situation where you have Cliff, who I think we can all agree is you know, up there with one of the brighter offensive minds and, you know, this generation of coaches and, you know, regardless of what has happened at his previous stops, I think everybody agrees he's, he's a really bright offensive coordinator. And then you go to that next year where you have co-coordinators, you have Clarence McKinney, again, really good coach. Who's now the head coach at Texas Southern. And then you have Jake Spavadol, who's the co-coordinator who um, is now the OC at Cal, you know, really good coaches, right. But going from cliff, to having co-coordinators and there's there's two things that are difficult about this in my opinion one is if you lose cliff if you're johnny and you lose cliff that's probably someone that you really leaned on for his expertise and his creativity Mm -hmm. and his encouragement of you as a player right you really seem to believe in johnny but the challenge for spav and clarence mckinney coming in as co co co-ocs the following year is how do you tell the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, that's not how we do this, you know, that's the wrong read, this, that, or the other. That's a really, really challenging position to be put in as a coach. It's like whose voice is really the loudest in this yeah. room? And it would, I would imagine that year, again, just knowing what I know about human nature and kind of being in football locker rooms throughout my, my life as a coach and as a player, Johnny was probably able to, generally do the things that he wanted to do with the offense, with the team outside of the football facility. And that's just a really challenging spot to be put in. So I think the dynamics of, of losing cliff as your OC and then having co OCs come in again, one's a younger guy, one's a little bit more experienced, but you know, it'd be interesting to hear like, how did the play calling situation work out there um, during that time and how much, were they able to rein Johnny in? Because even a redshirt sophomore, like there's still a lot of growth that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's still a ton of football you need to learn. And it'd be interesting to hear kind of what the experience was like that last year at a and I know everybody likes to talk about the Heisman year, but I would imagine that year did not set him up for success at the next level with when Kyle Shanahan, who has notoriously high expectations, yep. and uh, you're going to listen to Kyle Shanahan, like, yep. period. Like, he's not messing around. So I would imagine that was a shock to Johnny's system to go from 
where he was at A&M to the NFL with a very alpha offensive coordinator in Kyle Shanahan. Yeah, I always I I tell people all the time I think that Johnny was kind of the the best and the worst thing to happen to Kevin Sumlin just because and and to A&M's program you know really I wouldn't say worst thing to happen to the program I'd say more worst thing to happen to Sumlin than the program because you know the program's going to move on but you know to have to deal with those expectations right out of the gate after you're you know it's kind of most people were probably thinking, all right, let's go have us a nice little season, kind of build our way, <laughs> you know, into the SEC. And now it's like national national championship expectations every single year coming out of the gate, year two, when you probably don't have a roster that's ready for it. Now you're bringing in a coordinator that has never called plays before that, you know, like you said, is now having to call, you know, run a quarterback room with a guy that, you're going to have a hard time getting him to listen to you because it's basically his show now. That's that's a tough dynamic to have to deal with. And then, you know, you're having to deal with this balance as a head coach of, I've got this guy that's all over the place. I can't, you know, we can't find him half the time. I, like, I don't even, not just like in the facility, I don't even know where he is. And, but he's also the best player in college football. So I've got to let him play. But then I have to deal with the rest of this roster who is going to get, you know, and as coaches, that's a hard balance Very hard. to deal with that super talented player that, you know, we know we want on the field. But at the same time, you have the rest of your team that sees, well, this guy can get away with it. Can I get away with that? And then if I don't get away with it, well, why is a coach treating me any differently than he's treating that guy? And really, as players, we all know why that guy's getting treated differently. But <laughs> as as a player, you don't want, you know, one guy to be able to get away with one thing. So I think that had to be super, you know, just a tough situation for Kevin Sumlin to be put in that, you know, it's great. You set the world on fire. Everything happens so fast. But then, you know, it just it stinks for him that Johnny wasn't able to kind of control it all a little better and make his life a little bit easier. He was put in a tough position. I mean, you saw him at SEC media days that um, going into that second year, you know, he's having to answer all the questions about the Manning quarterback camp and all the, you know, the autographs and all that stuff. It's like, that's not what you want. You want to be able, you know, you want to be preparing your team to go get ready for, you know, a big season. And as opposed to you're having to deal with all this stuff on the side. And so I can imagine that, you know, that wore him down and he's only <laughs> in his second year as the head coach at A&M. Yeah, not easy, not easy. And and sometimes expectations can kind of get out in front of you to where you can't really keep pace with them. Yep. And having that good of a year in year one, you know, normally you're like, okay, we're rebuilding, like we're trending in the right direction. And it was almost like after that season, it was like national championship or bust. And it just wasn't completely realistic with maybe where they were at as a team and as a roster and a program. And uh, a quarterback can help you a lot, but also can't solve everything. And, and I think they did have an incredible roster that first year. And it was good the second year as well. But I think when, you know, you can also, you can have a really good roster, but you can, if you have staff turnover, that's also a real challenge, like mm -hmm. installing a whole new system. Like, yeah, it may, might be the same, but it's, it's not the same. Yep. Like we all know that, right? Like, oh yeah, we're just running the same offenses last year, but with a whole new person running it. Like that's, it's not the same. It's, it's different. And it may be the same words, but it's being taught totally differently. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a huge challenge. Um, but I thought, you know, all in all the, the documentary was really interesting. Um, I wished, wished it was longer. <coughs> Excuse me. I yeah, wish I they would have given us a little, little bit more. About a four or five parter. hundred percent. 100%. We we definitely we would love to get some more. Um I think they could have gone probably deeper on on some of the A&M stuff and definitely deeper on some of the NFL stuff. Mm -hmm. Um I think there's a there's a lot of stories there that maybe got got left out, which is, you know, it is what it is. But in transitioning to kind of our next topic, we're we're sticking with quarterbacks and I think, you know, when I think about Johnny Football and then I think about what might be on the professional level, kind of the polar opposite of Johnny football when it comes to how they've carried themselves as a professional quarterback so far. The person that comes to mind is Jalen Hurts. Um, he 
had a very different experience in college. He did kind of have that great freshman year and then ended up getting benched for Tua and was like a complete class act the whole way through at Alabama. Hung in there, was a backup quarterback, ends up going to Oklahoma, playing for Lincoln Riley, having an incredible season. And then, you know, in draft prep leading up is being asked if he'd be willing to switch to tight end and stuff like that. Just, he, I mean, he had to put up with so much crap throughout that process as well. And a lot of people doubting his ability as a quarterback. And he just kept chipping away and kept working hard and gets in the building with the Philadelphia Eagles. And they have, quote unquote, their franchise quarterback in Carson Wentz. And he just keeps chipping away and winning people over and really winning his teammates over, I think, more than anything with his work ethic. And he's a Houston area guy. Um, his dad's a high school football coach, I believe Channel View, Channel View High School, I believe. Um, might have that wrong, but I think that's right. And is just a worker. And so, again, I don't want it to be like critiquing Johnny with Jalen, but I think like you just have to look at if you're if you're talking to like a young quarterback and saying, this is someone to emulate with his humility, his work ethic, the way he carries himself in the building. You know, I can guarantee you his iPad never says zero, zero, zero on film. I mean, I, I can guarantee you that. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think we are really intrigued to see what the Eagles do coming off a Super Bowl loss, obviously losing some coaches, both their DC and OC took head coaching jobs. Uh, but they still look like they're rolling a little bit in uh, in preseason. It looks like they're you know loaded on defense. The offense is going to be exciting again. So really, we're here to focus on the offense. But wanted to transition us away from Johnny Football and into Jalen Hurts territory and the Philadelphia Eagles. And would love to hear maybe start with Rashad. What are you looking forward to with the Eagles in 2023? Eagles, man, they had a, a great season. Um, you know, they beat Jake's Cowboys one time, then. Unfortunately, uh, Gardner, unfortunately, uh, in a game back in December, uh, Jalen Hurts got injured and the Cowboys beat the Eagles. They responded. They returned a favor. Let's but, not forget uh, that Dak was hurt the first time. They that played. is true. That a lot is of exactly. Eagles fans like to keep that, you know, leave that out. <laughs> that, you know, old Cooper Rush was slinging the rock the first game. And Cooper Rush didn't look half bad. I know we're not, we're not talking about the Cowboys here, but hey, this – Hey, the there kid was, was Cooper Rush is balling. Hey, I just remember seeing on Twitter around that time with Dak and Cooper Rush going on. It was didn't Jerry say like I don't know what Jerry said, but anyways, I know Jerry's there was no part of it. <laughs> <laughs> There's some quarterback controversy going on, right? Not oh, at boy. all. But um, with the Eagles, I'm intrigued to see how they reinvent their offense this year. Um, offensively, they had a lot of fun on offense. They were able to do it all. Um, what I mean by that is with a run game, they would do wide zone, split zone, split zone lead with Jalen, split zone sucker. They would just like do all the fun stuff like zone wise. Then with their big offensive lineman and led by, um, but by senior elder Kelsey brother, um, Jason Kelsey, um, which is, he's a great center for, he's just a, like a wonderful center. Like probably, probably the best center in the book. Probably, probably top five center in the league. Gotta be up there. Yeah, definitely. And um, for them to be able to run their gap schemes, and it was just a, a thing of beauty how they were able to have, you know, GH counter handled and counter bash and dart and like all the anything gap scheme wise, they're able to do, able to do well. And um, with their tackles, uh, with Lane Johnson and Jordan Melata, like they're able to just do so much as a team. And, you know, pairing that with Jalen Hurts, right, who was a true dual death threat uh, QB, you know, um, having over 3,000 yards in, in the, on the air and 700 yards plus on the ground and over 30 plus touchdowns total. So they were doing a lot, right? Um, they're, they're going to probably miss uh, Miles Sanders a little bit. He was their leading rusher, had about 1,200 yards. But they have a very crowded um, running backs room. So it would be interesting to see – which running backs make the team and see which way they go. Um, I, looking at the running back room, it seems like they all have the same trait, which they're all currently all like really good pass catchers, which could be, I guess, the new wrinkle for their offense this year. 
Um, I know last year with Gainwell, he was kind of like their change of pace back. The guy out of out of uh, Memphis, he's like listed as like he's like five five seven, two hundred pounds, small one. Yeah, he's a little dude, but like he was he was good. You know, he's uh, he's good. So he's like uh, number fourteen for the for the Eagles. So and you know, I, I know I just talked about like their their run game and their and their quarterback a little bit and their, and their running backs, but they do they dominate teams with their pass game. You know, with um, with AJ Brown. Uh, I know Jake mentioned in writing a blog post about how AJ how the Titans let AJ Brown like out the door, which is insane. They didn't want to pay the man, and uh, Devonta Smith and uh, Quez Watkins. And what's great about this team for the Eagles? They're all young. Like a lot of these guys are young. I oh, know yeah. um, Jason Kelsey's like the, the the elder statements in the room, but you know Jalen, what he just turned twenty four, just turned twenty five, but like they're a super young team. So offensively, it would be intriguing to see how they add more layers to their run game, see if they protect Jalen this year, being that they paid him all that money in the offseason. Uh, Passing-wise, you know, they love to move A.J. Brown, AJ Brown around, and also they love um, uh, throwing to their tight end and getting in 12 personnel when they can. Do a lot of mesh concepts, a lot of four verts. Uh, so they do a great job of, like, it's a fun offense because they marry vertical air raid concepts with a gap run scheme and a zone run scheme. So it's, it's as a defense, it's like, what do we stop? So they have a typical, you know, as a team that wins the conference, usually wins the division, which has a tough, tough uh, schedule coming up, usually the year afterwards, right, for NFL, that's how it works. So it'll be good to see how uh, they fare this year. And, you know, the Super Bowl was came down to four plays. The Eagles were four to five plays away from winning that game, just like any other, any other NFL game. And they had their shot, but – Things went things went a different direction. You know, they probably could have been them. So, and Jalen played super well, as we all know. Oh, yeah, no doubt. So, he really well. He really did. That. <clears throat> so, so, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, just going through NFC teams in your head, they, they easily have the least question marks. I mean, that's easy to say about a team that just went to the Super Bowl, but a lot of times, I don't know, this happens more for the team that wins the Super Bowl than loses, but a lot of times a team will have guys, you know, they'll get to the Super Bowl and then the guys want to go get paid and then they'll kind of leave. Well, it seems like they kept a good amount of their roster and yeah. were, like you said, able to add a guy like DeAndre Swift. I mean, I think is huge to their roster where running back, I mean, Miles Sanders, I would say is, you know, a very solid NFL running back, but I think putting a guy like DeAndre Swift into that offense, that's just another guy that you're like, man, that's, I mean, that's like, I wouldn't say quite the equivalent of them adding A.J. Brown last year, but adding another piece like that, that's like defenses in the NFC have to be going like, come on, dude. Like being able to add a guy like DeAndre Swift to that offense kind of just just seems a little unfair when you have to look at a backfield with Jalen Hurts and DeAndre Swift in the backfield. And just as I kind of have watched them over the past couple years, as I kind of, you know, did a little research on them going into this, the one word that, doesn't just come up for a guy like Jalen Hurts, a guy like DeAndre Swift, a guy like A.J. Brown, but then literally their entire offense. Like I think when, you know, Howie Roseman and Nick Sirianni are thinking, when we bring guys into this building, I I mean, the number one word that comes to my mind is versatile. Like Mm -hmm. you have to be good at multiple things. And if you look at their whole offensive line, they can run block and they can pass block. Jalen can run and he can pass. You look at DeAndre Swift, he can run, he can catch the ball out of the backfield. You look at A.J. Brown, he's good in the slot, he's good outside. He can catch a slant, he can catch a fade. You look at Devontae Smith, same thing. You look at Dallas Goddard, he'll go down and, I mean, he'll split zone block, he'll, you know, gap scheme block, he'll go out for a pass, he'll Mm -hmm. catch a fade, he'll do whatever you need him to do. But I think literally across the board, They've just got guys that, and it's like you said, Rashad, you just don't have an answer for them because you really don't know what they're going to do. And if you go look at their, I mean, I'm one of those like super nerdy analytical guys that to me, it really all comes, every single game comes down to third down and red zone. And they were top three in both last year. And I think when you've got, when you've got a quarterback that can run, that makes it extremely hard to stop. But when you just add in all of those elements, it can be third and seven and they can say, we're just going to, run inside zone and our offensive line's good enough to block your five and we're going to go get it as to where a lot of teams are like, I don't know. We, it just becomes very obvious passing situations and they know that even if they're not even on, 
you know, the opposite side of the field and it's fourth and two, fourth and three, they're like, we might go for it because oh, yeah. you don't know how you don't know how to stop us. Or if it's fourth and one or less, we have a quarterback sneak that literally is unstoppable. Unstoppable. Like you can't physically stop it. So I just you look at they're really the only people that can stop themselves. And I and ultimately when you look at the Super Bowl, their defense is what killed them. I mean, yes, you're going against a historically great quarterback on the other side of the ball, but their defense, I don't think, forced a punt that entire game. And that's where I think the disappointment came in the Super Bowl was their offense did what they needed to do. Obviously, Jalen had the one fumble that resulted in a touchdown for the Chiefs that you know ultimately could have been the difference in the game. But, I mean, the dude threw for like 300-plus, ran for probably near 100-plus, had like four touchdowns. It's like, what else can you ask for the guy playing in his first Super Bowl? Um, but when I really look at what makes their offense so special, it's putting, putting in those third down and red zone opportunities, it's putting certain players in conflict and not making, it's really making Jalen's life a little bit easier. They, they use all the window dressing. They've got, you know, a lot of split flow and stuff going on to where, I can read this one defensive end. I can read this one linebacker and I can make that decision quick as opposed to when it, when you're in those third and three, fourth and three type situations and you give a defender time to drive, you know, defenders in the NFL are so good when you give those NF, when those corners of safeties time to drive up and make a play and you're a millisecond too late, they're going to make that play. But I think it just, they get, they, they allow him to play so quickly and, make such easy decisions and it's not it's not easy in the sense that you don't have to prepare as a quarterback for it it's just that you are so prepared that you know okay this is going to be my guy and if i can just read him correctly and react to him now i can play and i can go and all it takes is one false step and a guy like jalen's gonna you know he's gonna go get you 20. so i think that's truly what makes them so special and what nick sirianni does such a good job of is putting guys in conflict and kind of freezing freezing those linebackers, freezing those safeties that are kind of trying to come into the box and really making their life hard. Yeah, they, they do some really special stuff offensively. And I think you can definitely look at it and see the overall impact that Jalen Hurts has on the game <clears throat> based on his dual threat ability. And I also think he's a really good decision maker. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's like a, he's like a, I know I, I'm always making basketball references, but he's like a point forward. He's like, he's a distributor, but he's also physical. He he's, um, I don't think they're really worried about him taking a couple shots every game because yeah. he's built himself up physically where he's easily, I would say the most imposing quarterback, um, and one of the toughest quarterbacks in the league. But I think when you look at the Eagles statistically, the thing that really sets them apart above and beyond everything else is their efficiency in the run game. And their offensive line is a huge reason for that. Um, when you really dig into like the analytics of it, like they are far and away the most efficient run team in the NFL. And I think a big reason for that is their offensive line coach, Jeff Stoutland, who's been there ever since the Chip Kelly years. Um, and he's, he's remained with the team through different regime changes. He's, he, I, you gotta love an offensive line coach that wants to be an offensive line coach, and <laughs> like is 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 just going to be the the best in the league. And I think you could argue, but I shoot, he's got to be up there as best in the league. And it, and it's not just because good schemes, good technique, all that. He's also developed those offensive line players, uh, those offensive linemen over years. And like a Jordan Mailata, he was very raw coming in, and they worked him into you know, a pro bowl caliber offensive lineman at, at tackle Lane Johnson's been kind of with him for years. Jason Kelsey has been with him for years and they just, they hammer people in the run game. Yep. They absolutely hammer people in the run game. And I think like leading up to that super bowl, they, that was the biggest fear that the chiefs had was that they were just going to get worked in the run game. And it, I think, I think what you ultimately see though, is that, because of the rules and because of the way the, the game is like, it is a passing league. Like the NFL is a passing league. And so I'm interested to see, and you know, with Jalen playing so well in the Super Bowl, will the Eagles lean more into his ability as a passer in 2023? 
because as good as they are in the run game, sometimes you have to win a shootout. And But I also think they're going to be really good on defense, so maybe they don't have to. Maybe they can just run the ball and play great defense. Um, but, yeah, I mean, shoot, they're, they're, I would say far and away their, their offensive line is the strength of their entire team. And I also think Dallas Goddard's, like, really underrated. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think he gets the respect he that he deserves. Super Bowl that you're like, oh my goodness! Whoa. And you know, I think you made the you made the comment, Jake, of like Howie Roseman and Nick Sirianni. Like, well, not just Nick Sirianni, but specifically Howie Roseman putting this team together. They've drafted really well. They've found kind of those diamonds in the rough. I believe Dallas Goddard went to South Dakota State. I might be yep. getting that wrong, but I think he did. And it's like they're finding guys. Like they're finding guys that can really play and they're developing people over time. I think there's a reason the Eagles are who they are. Uh, but but I think Jalen is going to take that next step this year. I think with A.J. Brown and Devonta Smith, they're going to be really scary, really scary through the air. And it's just going to make what they do in the run game even more dynamic. Um, so I could see them being uh, an offense that is kind of neck and neck with the Chiefs throughout the season as most efficient in the entire league. And I think Kansas city has a tendency to do it through the air a little bit more. Um, I think the Eagles will do it a little bit more on the ground, but if Jeff Stoutland's my offensive line coach, I think, I think we're going to be in good shape. That's, that's my opinion at least. Yeah. They're going to be, they're going to be rolling this year. Also, they have a, they have a new uh, OC in uh, Brian Johnson, the former Utah QB back in uh, 08, 09. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think he posted. A, like he was he was doing an interview with a local radio sports channel, sports radio host in Philadelphia last week in regards to um, calling plays and being office coordinator. Whether it's being in the box on game days versus uh, you know being on a sideline, and um, yeah, Dan, I, you and I were talking about it last week. Yeah, so tell me tell me what your thoughts. I already I already know your thoughts, but let let everyone else just hear what you got to say about you know uh, being on a sideline as a play caller versus being in the box yeah no this is this is a great question i'm actually really excited to talk about this because i believe brian johnson i don't remember his word for word quote but i think he said something along the lines of i'm on the sideline i want to be on the sideline as a play caller and a big reason for it is communication like having open lines of communication with players and with other coaches as well now theoretically you have a headset on and you can communicate but um it's a little different it is definitely a little different I think there are two schools of thought on this. Um, there's definitely the coaches that want to be up in the box on game day and want to call the offense from a better vantage point because you do see everything a lot better in the box. Like you see sure. the coverages, you see the way the game unfolds, and you're also able to be less emotional. Uh, now I know we can all laugh, and you know, social media of like Ken Dorsey freaking out in the box or like somebody throwing their. You know, and and that happens, but it happens on the field too. Like, I think a lot of coaches will say, "Hey, I want to be in the box, so I'm not as emotionally attached to each play, and I can think ahead, and I can lay my call sheet out, and have my stack of pens, and mark things off, and all that." And it's more academic almost. Um, but then I think there's another school of thought with uh, you know coaching on the sideline, which is kind of my personal opinion is how important it is for a play caller to be on the sideline. Because you want to be able to look, especially your quarterback, in the eyes and have a conversation with them throughout the course of the game. And I think that's important, you know, maybe less important at the professional level and college level. But in high school, you're you're not just coaching X's and O's and scheme. You're also coaching a lot of psychology and a lot of confidence and trying to trying to give someone confidence through a headset is really difficult, in my opinion. I think it's a lot easier in person, eye to eye, um, on the sideline. And so I think you have to find a way to have a trusted person in the box that can give you the relevant information to make educated play calls throughout the course of the game. But I'm personally the type of coach that wants to be on the field. And I know Brian Johnson's kind of alluding to that as well, that he wants to be on the field to call plays. And so I think it's really interesting. I, I think for the typical fan, they're not necessarily thinking through like where the play caller is located, um, but it is a it is a conversation that every offensive coordinator play caller has with the head coach. 
hey, what are we going to do? Are you going to be on the sideline? Are you going to be in the box? Some head coaches really want their guys in the box. Um, some offensive coordinators will go up in the box to get away from the head coach because they don't want right. they don't want that pressure. They don't want to be oh, screamed sorry, at I didn't on, hear you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I missed you on that one, coach. Um, so you know, there's so many dynamics. It's I mean, football. Uh, we're going to talk about hard knocks next week, but um, in hard knocks, they said you know, football is a relationship game. Like that's what it is. And I think there's so many dynamics at play on game day of how those relationships are working themselves out with the coaching staff, with the players. And uh, it's, it's a delicate dance every week to figure out how are we most effective? How am I most effective as a play caller? And how does that give the players what they need to be as successful as possible? But it's a very interesting conversation for sure. Yeah. I think kind of like you were saying to your point, it's really important to have that guy in the box that you trust. And uh, ultimately one answer isn't, right or wrong obviously there's there's guys that have called it from the booth that have been great there's guys that have called it from from the field that have been great but it's one way or the other having that balance of like you said if i'm down on the field i have to have a guy that's giving you know giving me telling me what looks are going on because you can't see everything the same so it's you know tell me what you're seeing from up there communicating things efficiently and effectively giving me play calls that will make sense against those coverages And then vice versa, like you said, you like being on the field because you like seeing, you know, looking your quarterback in the eyes because, you know, I've been that quarterback on the sidelines too where your coach asks you something and you kind of don't want to tell him the full answer. But as a coach, you know, like I can tell if, you know, are you really telling me the truth or are you just kind of telling me what I want to hear as opposed to when you're, you know, when you're up in the booth talking to him, you can't really tell. But if you've got a guy down on the field that can have that conversation that can kind of sense it, Hey coach, yeah, he probably, you know, he probably didn't see that or whatever or hey coach, he came and told me this. If if you've got a guy down there that you can trust to be in that situation. So I think that's kind of something for any younger coach or assistant coach or whatever is try to be that guy for your coordinator. Try to be someone that he can trust that he can, you know, he can know that you know, even though you're not right there next to each other in the booth or right there next to each other on the field, you know, you're in completely two different locations. He's putting that much trust in you, you know, to be that guy to, you know, kind of be his other set of eyes or be his other set of ears or be that voice from a different place. And that's almost that, you know, you're basically almost as important as the play caller during the game because of, you know, if you don't have somebody down on the field and in the booth that can be kind of on the same wavelength, then you're really not getting the best out of your coaching staff. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. And I, one of the things that I always say, me and Rashad have talked at length about this, obviously sharing, sharing a sideline last year, you were in the booth this year, you're on the sideline. So, you know, we've talked a lot about this conversation. Uh, and, And one of the things that I've said is that as a play caller, you know, what happens on the headset is really important. And one of the things that I always say is I want information, not conversation, because sometimes you want to have a conversation about this, that, or the other. And as a play caller, it's really hard to think when, you know, you have conversations going through your head and you're trying to focus on the next play. And so you really do have to be disciplined as a staff of the way that you communicate with each other. Um, And that can be a real challenge, I think, for coaches that are, you know, getting on new staffs or being around people that they're maybe not as familiar with is everybody kind of has a different pace for how they handle the headset. There's, you know, guys I've worked with in the past, you know, in North Carolina that are pretty chatty on the mic and I have to be like, Hey, I, I can't think I have to, I have to yeah, yeah, my mute buttons there for reason. <laughs> and so, you know, but you, but you have to communicate well beforehand because in the heat of the moment, uh, man, the, the headset can be a really intense place. It really can. And that's, that's one thing I wish fans had more access to of like yeah. the conversation going on with between coaches, because it would probably not be okay to put on TV what's happening on the headset. And so it's, it's just one of those funny things about football that is, is very unique to football is just the amount of talk that, and chatter that's happening on the headset that goes into every single play that's called on game day. It's just really fascinating. And, you know, I think the, the NFL guys, 
you know, there's a reason they always want to make sure they have a right-hand man. Either you have your right-hand man in the booth or, or if you want to call from the booth, you have your right-hand man on the sideline. Because, Jake, to your point, it's like you don't want something to be lost in translation. You, you, you may want to call it from the booth, but you better have someone who can handle the quarterback position, who can have kind of that psych, you know, sports psychology conversation to calm somebody down or to, uh, you know, get somebody straight um, on a play call or whatever. Um, it's just really important. And so uh, staff dynamics are, we could probably do seven shows on staff dynamics, but uh, you know, I think it's, it's just it's just another thing about football that makes football so great is that there's so many moving parts and so much technology in, interspersed in there too that you're just trying to figure out what what the heck's going on and I think the the typical fan probably doesn't understand all that goes into it. Yeah, it's 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 very comparable to working in a kitchen. <laughs> you know, like there's yeah, so no, many, I, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So many, it's it's so much. I mean, ultimately, right? The final product for the comparison you can make is. You know, the dinner is the, the 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 game or the play that's happening, right? Like that's 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 the touchdown, right? But um, there's a lot going into making that dinner, and there's so many personalities, so many voices, and so many thoughts. And like I said before, yes, we can spend hours talking about coaching dynamics, right? And the thing about football is that you have coaches and you have players from like all over, you know, all over the world, right? With different biases and different, different worldviews and different experiences and different ways of doing things. And everybody kind of has to be like locking step to do well. No that's why you always see those teams that say like one heartbeat, one team. Um, Cause that's true. Like you need to be on the same page. And when it comes to just like the play caller with their right hand man, um, whether they're on the booth or on the sideline, they kind of have to see the game the same way. Cause they yeah. don't like, it doesn't work. They need to be extension of each other. Um, and they need to be dialed in on the game plan. They need to be dialed in on like just pre- like preferences. I know Dan and I last year were like getting to know each other with play calling. And um, it was funny. Be- it's funny because Dan is very, and he'll, he'll tell you, he spent hours talking about this too. Dan is very, uh, he's not a script guy. He's a jazzy guy. You know, he's <laughs> just like, he's just like call what he feels in a moment and just let it rip. So like, we don't have, so for me, I was always like, okay, like, do I tell him things? What do I tell him? Do I tell him, like, I like this, I like that? But Dan's also a big, like, feedback guy, too. So it was a kind of a cool uh, partnership. We kind of grew, you know, over um, over the past year. Like, each game, we kind of grew more and more. And I'm kind of used to being with, like, office coordinators that have scripts. And they, don't want, they don't really don't want a lot of information. They kind of just want to know. They just want you to, like, just confirm what we saw on film a few days before. Are they, are they in this XYZ coverage? Are they in XYZ front? cool thanks <laughs> and they kind of just move on right right, so it was right. like it was it was cool to be able to you know kind of work on just you know it was it was always funny the question that dan always asked me like in between drives like all right Shad, what do you think and i was like this is what we see this is what we like and we go, <laughs> right it, right you know? so it was, it was just it was just fun kind of building that and um, i think it's truly important also i know jake's talking young coaches earlier but yeah for young coaches i think it's super important for you to if you're not a play caller get close to the play caller find ways to add value by breaking down film, knowing a game plan, because you can add value um, when it comes to like being in a booth or being on the sideline. If you know the game plan and you're able to just say, Hey, I really like this inside zone against this front. We should do it. They play caller. They trust you. They're going to do it. Then it works out. Well, you're the guy. If it doesn't work out well, they probably tell you mute your mic, you know? So, <laughs> so I tell you, hey, just don't tell me, don't talk to me during the game. You know, you don't want that as a young guy. So, definitely an easy way to gain respect and gain just gain respect uh, from your play caller by by just learning the game more, being dialed in the game plan, and and knowing what's going on. Yeah, and I think too to your point, Rashad, it's not just about knowing the plays and like knowing the playbook. It's about knowing how that person who's calling plays thinks and how they process information mm-hmm. and what they value and what information they do value in the moment. And so I think that's, that's another thing for, uh, for young coaches that are trying to figure out, maybe they want to be a play caller one time or at some point in their career, or maybe they just want to be someone of value on that staff, figure out how your offensive coordinator thinks, how they process information and see if you can deliver information in a way that works best for them. Um, I think that's one of the biggest pieces of advice I can get, I can give is, um, you know, everybody operates a little bit differently. 
Um, and, and everybody's, you know, improving over time too. So no one's static in this, but, um, it's not just about, Oh, I know the plays. I know what, you know, the players are supposed to do on this play. It's what are the, what's the situation? You know, what, what type of mentality does my, my fellow coach have in, in approaching these situations? And I don't know, there's so many, there's so many dynamics at play for sure. Uh, but I'm, I'm intrigued to see Brian Johnson taken over, uh, as the Eagles, um, play caller. Um, I'm sure Nick Sirianni will still have a lot of input in what's going on on the on offense, just because he's been an offensive coordinator. Um, but excited to see kind of how Brian Johnson steps up and his relationship with Jalen continuing to grow, and just seeing how they how they partner with the offense this year and and how he kind of makes it his own. It, it'll be really fun to watch for sure. And you know, Brian Johnson played at Utah when Utah was doing some really fun stuff on offense and. Uh, so he's got a creative mind and he's, you know, he was at Florida previously as well. I think he was with Dan Mullen. And so he's been, he's been around some, some really good football coaches and, uh, I'm sure he'll have some wrinkles in there as well. That'll be a lot of fun, fun to watch for sure. Yeah. We'll be hoping for a, a decent season from the Eagles. Maybe not. <laughs> Jake doesn't want him to have too good of a season. Well, not, uh, <laughs> I will say Jalen, Jalen's one of those guys. It's hard it's hard to root against him. He's, Impossible um, to root against him, man. Impossible. I remember when he was at when he was at Alabama, and he and uh, Tua mm-hmm. um, when they were in the SEC championship game against Georgia, and Tua was having those ankle issues, and Jalen came back in that game. I was like, I don't know if I've ever rooted harder for for a guy than in this game right now. And when he brought him back, I was like, man, that's like storybook stuff right there like they'll be making movies about this guy one day and it's, no just, doubt. it's yeah. only it's only got better for him since so hard no doubt, hard not no to doubt. root for him no doubt about it well johnny football philadelphia eagles hope you guys enjoyed it we'll be back soon with more from the play callers club as always we appreciate your support if you're enjoying the podcast please shoot us a rating review something like that on apple podcasts or spotify as this thing continues to grow, we just can't thank you guys enough for tuning in and uh, showing your support. So we appreciate y'all, and we will talk soon. Victory is a great play call.